1: Hello, I'm Craig, and welcome to another episode of Football Kit Memories, the football podcast that gets under the shirt. Today, I meet football writer Kenny Miller, who in previous roles worked in comms for the Scottish FA and Hibs. During our chat, I speak to Kenny about his start in journalism at a young age, working with 442 Magazine, and his more recent career working at Hamden and Easter Road. Kenny also shares some stories with me about the book he co-wrote in 2012, Football Manager Stole My Life, in which he got to meet the legendary Tonton Zona Makoku. Later, I asked Kenny to pick out three of his favourite football shirts and tell me a little bit about what they mean to him. We covered some classic shirts, as Kenny told me about a trip to the velodrome inspired by Marseille legend Frank Soze, meeting the Jamaicans in Paris during the World Cup in France 98, and we round off 114 years of history with Hibernian's emotional Scottish Cup win in 2016. Remember, you can listen to this and other episodes of Football Kit Memories on all major audio platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please do like, follow, share, but above all, please do enjoy the podcast. Okay, so today on the podcast, I'm delighted to say I am joined by Kenny Miller. How are you doing, Kenny?
2: I'm good, Craig. Thanks for asking me on.
1: Mate, it's great to have you here. Now, we were talking just before we started recording about how I'm going to introduce you, usually somebody's a journalist or usually somebody, you know, is a TV presenter, podcaster. But you've done so many things, Kenny. How would you describe yourself?
2: Probably, like, your team's versatile player that's not particularly outstanding in any one position. You can do a job in a few areas, so I don't want to name any specific players and and get (laughs) off on a bad start. But, no, um, I've done a bit of writing, a bit of comms work, and a bit of football marketing along the way, so probably a, a mix of those three things now.
1: Nice, nice. I very much a maybe an Anthony Van den Boer from football manager. I used to like him back in the day. Cover a load of positions.
2: I'll take that. I was thinking more along the lines of Billy Jones was a stalwart for me on yeah. on Chapman back in the day. But we'll go we'll go straight for the Belgian wonder kid. I like that. <laughs> take that.
1: So, um, would it be fair to say you're you're a football journalist by trade? Did you start out that way? football journalism.
2: Definitely. I, was, I remember having a very blunt conversation with my dad at an early age. I think he waited until I was about 10 years old to shatter any lingering dreams that I had of, of kicking a ball properly. <laughs> I must have been about 10 when he told me, so he probably waited a good five years longer than he, than he might have done. But no, I, I was always half decent at, at English in school. And I think very quickly, genuinely from around the age of 10, I, I, that's all I wanted to do. And that was certainly the focus in school, out of school, I did a, sounds staff saying it now, but I had my own local radio show on our Gael yeah. FM, Monday Night Football Focus, where we had big names like Craig Levine, Craig Brown, would come <laughs> on and, and do us a turn. So the wow. I think it was, there was reasonable feedback from the 10 listeners and everything kind of went from there. So yeah, from a very, very early age, I, I knew that was what I wanted to do.
1: Wow. So w- were you, you have been around a few different newspapers and things like that then?
2: I was actually really lucky. We won a competition in, in 2002 as Scottish football's most dedicated football supporters because we would go and watch Hibs from, from Campbelltown, where I grew up. Yeah, That's a, a length, it's a seven, eight hour round. I'm doing myself a disservice here, and maybe an eight hour round trip. So we won a competition to go to the World Cup in Japan. Wow. And I remember the newspaper sent a journalist all the way to, to Campbelltown from Glasgow, which must have been the short straw of all short straws. <laughs> To come and interview us in way. I'm I'm hip staffed. We, we shared a back page in the paper that day with, with Frank Sozie, the day he was appointed manager. Wow. But I remember the, the journalist Ewan Smith, who now works for the, the courier in Dundee and does a does a great job. I remember he helped set me up with work experience at the Scottish Sun at that point and yeah. 14. And I suppose everything kind of went from there. I was 17, about halfway through my last year in school when I started at the Sunday Post. And yeah, all kind of went from there.
1: Wow, wow. So recently um, I noticed that you uh, wrote the piece on the Scotland team before the Euros just gone. Um, and I wondered what the kind of mood was like in the camp when you spoke to those guys. How were they feeling? Were they confident? Were they tense?
2: Before the Euros? Yeah. I suppose it's the, the 442 stuff. I think the, well, the people I spoke to, Andy Robertson, Kieran Tierney, and, and John McGinn, are maybe outliers because they're. They're a bit different in terms of personalities within the squad. They're, they're guys that have proven themselves at a really high level. And there's no, there was no sense from them that they were there to make up the numbers. They're used to, as I said, going, going toe-to-toe with, with people of a really good standard week on week. So I think what I liked and what the magazine fed back was they were they were very relatable as people. And I think, to me, that's one of the things that I like about Scottish football is that it's, it's so authentic. We haven't lost that link with maybe how I, I see football should be. Um, John, McGinn, John McGinn, for example, was so excited to be in a, a major tournament Panini sticker album for the first time. That, that meant a lot to him, even though he got about 50 Scott McTominay's and was, was <laughs> in sight of him. Andy, Andy Robertson, as captain, was very aware of his place in history, he doesn't really have any sort of ego at all, but he, he was conscious that he's grown up Scotland daft. He was following in Colin Henry's footsteps. And and Kieran Tierney's just the type of competitive individual that you wouldn't want to play at Scrabble because he would he would go all out to, to beat you. So he, <laughs> he kind of came at it from a, a competitive standpoint. He had a really rough transition from Celtic to Arsenal in terms of yeah. everything in life being turned upside down his whole thing is about being the best version of himself he can be that's that's how he put it so no the the three of them were were very determined but at the same time trying to make the most of it because they're painfully aware as we all are that these things don't don't come up too often
1: yeah of course i was wondering as well like if you could like pull back the curtain a little bit how did that kind of work did you go and spend time with the team as they were preparing or was it all done over zooms that kind of thing
2: Yeah, I'd love to say it was that in-depth and that I'd based myself with the camp for six months to get some great anecdotes, but in this instance, it was really just a case of pulling in some old favours. I've known John since he was at St Mirren as a kid. I first dealt with Andy pretty early on at Queen's Park. Kieran I hadn't spoken to as often, but an old colleague at the Scottish FA was was helpful in terms of getting the ball rolling on that one. So, no, I would love to say it was in-depth and done properly, but the way circumstances were it was it was just a few zoom calls yeah. but it was great to, it was well selfishly from from my point of view it was a nice bucket list thing to tick off scotland in and in a major tournament for for 442 it's as much as it was a big deal for john to see his mug and a panini sticker book for a big tournament it was it was nice for me to have i've done that for for the magazine that i grew up reading
1: yeah it's incredible I was going to ask you, actually, so obviously writing for 4Core2, you do some work with Nutmeg as well, right? And they're very different publications and kind of a very different audience. And I'm guessing a very different way of putting across what you're trying to talk about in writing. just wondered, like, what it's like trying to write for a different audience? And do you, do you think about that a lot when you're putting stuff together?
2: I think you need very, very good sub-editors in both in both places that can try and make sense of the, the stuff that I send in. <laughs> I it's almost, it does become second nature. If you speak to anyone that, that writes for a living, everyone can write. It's just about tailoring it for the, for the platform and, and the audience. So, some of the best writers that I've ever worked with have been in the tabloids, for for example, and just because they're not able to show off their extensive vocabulary doesn't mean they've not got it. It can be a bit formulaic, but they're very tight. They can write to, to tight deadlines and stuff. So it's, just a different it's just a different process but no i don't i don't find the adaptation too difficult and it's two publications that i enjoy working for 442 like i said was always the the big one and i really like what nutmeg i suppose stands for and the way they tell maybe less obvious scottish football stories the same way that the boys at the terrace do and and a view from the terrace laterally on on tv and I don't think Scottish football's rich, it's full of stories. I, I don't think there's one way to tell them, but certainly I would maybe gravitate towards the way they, they, these guys do it.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, m- much like you said, the kind of kind of honesty and feeling of a, a bit close to something, isn't it, with Scottish football, which it's one of the reasons why I, I follow it and enjoy it as well. Um, so you did journalism for a long time, then you moved into kind of media and communications with the SFA. How did that all come about?
2: It was never the plan. Like, like I said, I... I only ever wanted to be a, a sports writer from the age of 10 and I had nine years at the Sunday Post and then five, five good years at the Scottish Sun. And I'd done a load of freelance stuff around sort of about that. But then it was really, it sounds so cheesy, this, but it was, it was just a case of heart overhead um, when I was asked if a role at the Scottish FA uh, appealed. And I'm a big Scotland man I hear people talking about their English teams and stuff like that but for me it was always pretty black and white it was always it was always Hibs in Scotland yeah. so the, the offer came up and I didn't really give it that much thought it sounds it sounds bad I was I really enjoyed the job I was in at the time really enjoyed the people I was I was working with but it just it felt like a great opportunity and and I was only really there for for a year and a half the way things panned out with the, the chance to go to Hibs then but I absolutely yeah. loved it it's probably probably been the happiest time in my, my working life. It was a real privilege to to work in there. And they don't always, they're not always perceived well, the people at the Scottish FA, because they're the governing body and it's probably never going to be particularly cool. But I know that every day it was a privilege to walk into Hamden. And I know every day it took about half an hour to get to my desk because there was always so many interesting people on all levels of the game to, to speak to. and They all had a passion for their own corner of the game. And it's those guys that I was really... Pleased for that night in Serbia because there's a lot of guys who have been in there for a long time working hard and they finally got the payoff this summer
1: yeah the unsung heroes kind of thing what, what exactly did the role entail there like what kind of stuff did you do
2: sometimes it felt like you were firefighting with a water pistol <laughs> <laughs> it was I Greg Mailer who was a boss at the time who's now at Manchester United he I think I talked about short straws earlier on Greg <laughs> asked me to look after communications around the disciplinary side of things so every time the compliance officer was involved the scottish cup was a fun one because everybody loves the scottish cup there's no there's no downside to that and i suppose the area that i was most enthusiastic about was the the youth teams sort of up to under 21 level i would help out the guys with the, the a team and stuff but i really enjoyed working with the younger age groups it was always something i'd I'd taken a, a keen eye on since I'd, I'd started out as a, a 17 year old and I had some great trips away with, with those guys and probably formed a, a, few, a few lasting relationships from that so yeah that those were the main responsibilities but it was the kind of place where everybody rolled up their sleeves and, and mucked in and you would find yourself working in all sorts one day you'd be booking guests for a Scottish Cup draw keeping everything crossed that there were no Rod Stewart type incidents. And, <laughs> and, uh, next you were uh, dealing with some of the more serious matters where you would have journalists sitting in the main reception at, at Hamden for, for hours on end having to order pizza. So it was, yeah, yeah. It, was a really, it was a really eventful period but I absolutely loved it. I'm still very close to, to everybody there to this day.
1: So were you there when the Rod Stewart draw happened?
2: I actually started I think in the first draw after that. Okay. And I remember uh, I remember really naively thinking, it was a small team we had working on the Scottish Cup, and I remember really naively thinking, like, how hard can this be? It's just, you put your hand in, you rummage about a bit and you draw out the teams. And I still remember the look of trepidation on everyone's faces after, when, just before we did the, the next draw. And I remember when we booked Amy McDonald, who was great to work with, but right before the draw went live, she said, wait till you see what I'm going to do. And she was only she was only joking, but you could see in everybody's faces instantly going a, a pale shade. Um, so, so no, it was there was no thankfully there were no real uh, adventures when I was on that side of things. But we had some really really interesting people. I think the most surreal experience was when we had uh, Mister Buffer, like the world world famous. MC introduced the, the Scottish Cup final between Motherwell and, and Celtic and yeah. I'd grown up a, a big fan of the Rocky films obviously you'd, you'd see him introducing the world's biggest fights and yeah to be helping look after him for the day was a, a surreal experience I remember handing him the team sheet and naively again pointing out Gail Bigger a man, his name and the mother will line up and say oh you'll have a hard time with that and and he's really smooth American accent. Turned around and said, uh, "You mean Gail Bigger Romana? He was a total, a total pro. There was uh, no flies on him. So it was a kind of can't stress enough. It was a great, a great experience in there. And, and um, yeah, don't, don't regret that for a second.
1: Very nice. So you, you kind of took that expertise you learned at the SFA and then moved on to Hibernian.
2: Yeah, my. I mean, my family and I have always supported the burning, the extended family. Um, it's always been in the, in the blood. My younger brother, Colin, he was communications manager, and then moving into a different role. So, um, the opportunity came up to to go in there. And being totally honest, it probably came a lot earlier than I would have liked because I, I would have loved to have, have stayed at Hamden for a, a long time. But yeah, again, it was a it was a hard one to to turn down. So. Yeah, made the made the trek through from, from Glasgow to Edinburgh. And, and again, it, it was just a real privilege. I think after 14 years in, in sports journalism to be, I would say, around football. I, I learned so much um, from experienced journalists, from experiences at home and abroad. But I think I've probably learned more about the game and the people within it from I would say working directly in football between Hamden and, and Hibbs, the, the sort of frontline experience you get good and bad really. Yeah. Really does show you what the game's all about. Mostly mostly just in terms of people and the, the impact it has on their on their day-to-day life.
1: Yeah, of course. I was wondering as well, are you much freer at a club versus a country in terms of the tone of voice you can take and the kind of campaigns you can do, etc.?
2: I can only speak for, for myself. At, at Hamden, in terms of the social media channels at Hamden, they've got a, a great guy, Jack Evans, who looks after that and he guarded the keys to the social media channels with his life. So I can't say I ever got near that, but at Hibs I did enjoy. Some people hate it, but I enjoyed the the back and forth on on Twitter, especially. And I don't think there's any point in taking yourself too seriously. Obviously, you have to be professional, and and I think especially as a, the the journalist in you is always thinking one step ahead, thinking about the ramifications if you write something daft, but. I do think at the same time you have to talk to supporters like supporters and not just be this faceless corporate entity and and try and be style over substance or anything like that. You, I always thought you would try and speak to supporter the way you would want to be spoken to. So no, I, I enjoyed that that side of things. But yeah, at the, the back of your mind, you're always thinking, please don't, please don't land everybody and bother. <laughs> and I think, I think we just about managed to get by without, uh, without any major incidents.
1: Very nice. Were you ever involved in any kit launch campaigns?
2: yeah a couple again I, I can't profess to having any input in the design side of things which is probably a good thing because when you're a kid and you've got the blank sheet of paper it's easy but when you see how much goes into it it's, it's a lot more difficult but those were always the exciting things new kits and especially new sign-ins pushing the buttons on those yeah. you're very very conscious that sometimes there's a lot of operational stuff you have to put out and there's a lot of mundane stuff you have to put out but you know when you push the button on that, that that's the stuff that, that really excites people and, and again that was a privilege to, to be involved in I was so, I mentioned Jack at the Scottish FA I was so pleased for him the moment Scotland qualified for the Euros and and I saw another nice tweet from Andy McKinnon at Rangers when he got to push the button on Rangers winning the league yeah. I, I'm always so pleased for these guys because maybe other than ScotRail in this country you don't get much more abuse than <laughs> looking after the social media platforms of a Scottish football club so those those guys go through it. So when they get that one moment, I'm always I'm always pleased for them. And that applies to, applies to a lot of people.
1: Yeah. Is there anyone out there kind of out with like Hibs of Scotland that you think does the job really well in terms of the way they communicate with fans, the way they market themselves, their brand, et cetera?
2: tried to. I mean, there were so many things I, I, I would have wanted to do it at Hibs, but... It's hard when you've you've got the churn or you you've got resource issues and you have to try and balance out what needs done against what you would like to do. But I was I always would have liked to have spent more time on the player marketing side to actively push your. your I was going to say your better players, but some of your more promising young players, and I, I look at clubs like Dortmund, who I think do it very well. They're a great mixture of players having fun, but also showing them in a in a good light. Ajax are brilliant at it I suppose they are the, the big budget versions but the other side you've got Norseland who I also think tell the tell story very well but the, I mean there's great there's great examples throughout Scottish football as well I, I love um, I love what Montrose do in terms of having a laugh they won't mind me saying it's a bit more rough and ready than some of the polished stuff okay. at the other end of jail, like Motherwell who are also excellent storytellers but I could point to stuff I've seen at Aberdeen Hearts most clubs to be honest I think everyone's basically in the same boat and I yeah. think you get some very, very good stuff out there. The, the difference comes in the number of pairs of hands or the budget or whatever and how refined it is. But I think there's a lot of good, as I said, there's a lot of good storytelling in, in Scottish football and a lot of good stories to tell.
1: Yeah, a lot of creativity. It's good Good to see it yeah. recognised and social and stuff, isn't it?
2: I also think, like like, like I said, there, there's loads of good stuff overseas and, and in different sports. You look at LSU and, and college football in America. But I do think Scottish football is in its own little bubble for better or worse I do think there is a different way of talking to people over here and mm. I think you can look for best practice all you want overseas but like I said there's, there's plenty to, to like and, and rate here that's worthy yeah. of people's attention.
1: Well, it has to resonate with the audience you're speaking to right isn't it if you, you try to be an American NFL club and you're working in the SPFL it's just not going to resonate I suppose is it?
2: Yeah and, there's, and there's, there's two sides of it listen you have to be open to, to new ideas and, and doing things differently but at the same time I suppose it comes back to what are you doing it for and, and who are you doing it for? Yeah. You can, you can spend so much time on a bit of content and make it the most polished thing. And, you know, it looks good and it'll look good in your show but if it doesn't appeal to the supporters, you know, what's the point? You're really, you're really doing everything for them. So yeah, that's what you, you keep coming back to, I think, ideally.
1: Yeah. So like Kenny, before we do dive into your kits, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about a book that I really enjoyed reading. Uh, it came out, 10 years ago, is that right? It's Football Manager Stole My Life. You were involved Yeah. In. Can you tell me a little bit about that, how that all came about?
2: I can take a third of the credit for this <laughs> because I wrote a third of the book. I worked alongside uh, two guys called Martin Gregg and Neil White. They were at different newspapers, but we would see each other in the press boxes. so We would play in a, a particularly aggressive game of fives at Townhead. <laughs> and the two of them now run a company called Backpage Press which have produced some of the the best books I was going to say in Scottish football but across football in in the last few years they've done some brilliant stuff with Graham Hunter they got the rights to Pirlo's book which is one of the best football books you, you can read um and they pitched the idea of of doing a book on, on Football Manager or, or the series Champ Man that became Football Manager because it was the twenty year anniversary. Yeah. So the idea was to do it with the support of Sports Interactive, but do it off our own back so that we could be a bit more have a bit more freedom about it. So Backpage Press produced it with Neil, myself, and a, an English writer called Ian McIntosh, who a lot of people will know. Yeah. We managed to turn it around pretty quickly, and yeah, that was that was ten years ago. So that was. Yeah, that was one of the best things I've ever been involved in. It was just such such great fun, and we launched it in London with an open game of fives, and there was, was hundreds of people turned up for a, a kickabout wow. um, with a really extrovert Ian Macintosh in goal. I was just running about about the way I would, and <laughs> uh, the star turn in our team was a guy called Ton Tonzo Wow,
1: that's the guy.
2: I'm so glad. I'm so glad that was your reaction, and I don't have to explain who Tonton no, Zolomikuku no, yeah. for for anyone else. Tonton Zolomikuku was a wonder kid in Championship Manager 2001, 2002. He was he was a kid at Derby at the time, and then like so many Miles Jacobson at Sports Interactive will let me say this: like a few, they don't quite live up to their real life billing. The way the way any young player can be highly rated, and for a combination of reasons, it just doesn't work out. Tonton had a really difficult life and had just become a bit of a recluse, I think, by his own admission. But he managed to eventually track him down for a section in the book I did with sort of in-game cult heroes. And I still remember when the email dropped in from him in the, the wee small hours of the morning and just said, I you're looking for me, uh, which sounds <laughs> really sinister. But yeah, it, was great to, it was great to then turn up at the airport in London with a sign that just said, Tonton Zola Makuku." and, well, and get, get him involved in our, our game of fives. He missed that decisive last-minute penalty which probably isn't the best way to end that story. But yeah, it was just a, a great laugh and a great experience. So to this day, yeah, I really owe back page Press a lot for that. And yeah, I would encourage everybody to check out all the books because they're two very switched on guys. Yeah,
1: very nice, mate. Very nice. What a guy, Tonton Zanamokoku. Brought a lot of joy to a lot of uh, young teenagers' lives, I think.
2: Still in touch. It's probably the most unlikely friendship in football. But, <laughs> but if, the, the encouraging thing from that chapter certainly was... Everybody was so happy to speak about their in-game fame, I think is probably the way to put it. Kennedy back here Sioglu, would play, would sign himself for, for Barcelona. Freddie Adu was really I suppose down to earth and revealing about his in-game fame and how that didn't translate necessarily into to real life. Yeah, Cherno Samba was another great guy. There was Mark Kerr, Willie That Yeah, there were loads. It was a, a lot of fun to to do that, but but, yeah, that was a, a great experience, and it's. Uh, I sobered sobering thought that that was 10 years ago now. That just, that just means it's the 30th anniversary of next year and we should really do an updated version.
1: Exactly, yeah, there must be others. I, I wonder, did any of the players flat out refuse to speak to you at all? Anybody that you approached?
2: I, w- I wouldn't like to name names okay. because that it wouldn't really be fair on Alex Notman, uh, who <laughs> absolutely <laughs> refused point blank once he'd, once he'd heard what it was about. Mark Kerr took a bit of convincing... But then was absolutely great when i got him and it was interesting because when football manager brought out a film to to on the back of of the book mark Mm -hmm. air was involved and he was really slick on camera so i like to think we tempted him into the into the line to talk about that but no every day there's so many players play the game and it's got credibility within football so it wasn't as it wasn't as difficult as, as it might have been
1: So mate, uh, should we talk about some football shirts? Absolutely. So the first question I ask everybody on the podcast when we get to the shirts bit is what do football shirts mean to you?
2: I think just raw excitement. Football, new football shirt always meant the start of a, a new season. And whether you got we, we would we would always be quite lucky, we'd always, my dad would always try and get us the home shirt. Um Maybe you'd wait until Christmas or a birthday to get the away one then. and It was just such an event. I don't remember as a kid ever disliking them. I think I'm far more opinionated about them as an adult, which is probably the wrong way around. But I think as a kid, just everything your club does is, is brilliant and you're, you're just desperate to get the, the newest model.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, it just it means a lot. I, I listened to the, the podcast you did with, with a few of the other guys, like Craig Telford and, and Joel Sked and, and everything they say. Resonates, and it's been interesting to watch the the recent trend of, of these strips going for a, a lot of money. Um, the there's, there's some I've got just wouldn't cash in, ca- cash in on for for anything. And, and there's a few I would love to to get my hands on. So I suppose it's one thing that just binds every football fan together, isn't it? I mean, who who doesn't like football strips?
1: Exactly. Yeah. There's always, it's, you know, even even if you're not a collector or something, there's always something that they evoke. And I guess that's the point of the podcast, mate. So great idea. Great idea. See what you've done. <laughs> so. Uh, your first shirt choice is a uh, Marseille. I think it's a '92 to '94 home shirt by Adidas. How come you yeah. chose this one?
2: I'd like to apologise in advance to any Rangers fans that listen to this because that campaign will bring no positive memories for them because it was overshadowed by we'll call them a series of allegations against yeah. Marseille. But they just—I remember this iconic white strip—and they had a, they had a great team. They had uh, you can remind them off. Bartes, Angloma, Bolly, Desai, Boxcich. Voller, uh, Deschamps, but they had a guy, Frank Sozy who scored a, a great strike against Rangers, but it really came to my attention when he, when he signed for, we'll call it a transitional Hibs team in, in the first division. And the second tier of Scottish football, and I'd never seen anything like this guy before. He was just, everyone else called him a, a casual colossus, and he was just such a, a classy player, and he made a real impression on a, a younger version of me. So you do that thing where you try and consume every bit of detail about them. And Frank Sophie is a living legend in Marseille because he was one of the players that that won the European Cup, sorry, the Champions League for them. And he played a lot of times for France. So yeah, you consume everything about him. So I remember my dad took me on a a trip to Marseille, going to the Velodrome, going to a game. You collect, I remember finding that strip and and getting that vintage strip. And I'm lucky I've been back to Marseille so three times since then I went back with the SFA, or Scottish FA, sorry, they hate SFA. Scottish FA doesn't fit so so well into negative songs about them, so you always say Scottish FA in full. Uh, but three weeks in Marseille for the Toulon tournament, which oh, was wow. great. And then I was back for a wedding, so I, I always, I always like going back to, to Marseille. I think the velodrome's special from a professional perspective. I think what they do on social media is is really cool. But yeah, it was all... It was all about Frank Sosey and and that iconic strip, and I've, I've managed to sort of speak to a lot of my heroes over the years. Just doing the job, Frank Sosey remains the one person that I just couldn't get the the words out with. It was really, really? as a, a fourteen year old, just really embarrassing, just standing with a a microphone for a like FM, just trying to get the words out and, I would hate to see any footage of it back because it must have been absolutely mortifying. So I like I like to think that if our paths ever cross again, I'll I'll have a bit more composure. But I can't uh, I can't make any any promises really. But there was there was there was upsides to it. It definitely made me it sounds daft, but it made me stick in at French in school. Okay. I think, and, and I idolised Zinedine Zidane at the same time, and he's synonymous with Marseille, even though he never actually played for the club. But yeah, probably through Frank bit of Zidane and and the place itself but I always loved that that Marseille strip and I've still I've still got it it's got a few grass stains on it that I really still wanted to, to get out
0: yeah
2: uh, I've resisted the urge to spend a lot of money on buying one that fits me a bit better now but yeah I love uh, I do love that strip
1: oh, it's a great choice fantastic so we're going to move on you've got something pretty crazy this is the Jamaica home shirt by Kappa from France 98
2: what a strip though
1: yeah it's incredible
2: the kappa aren't prominent enough in the the football strip scene these days it's just that the home and the away version as the the green sort of change version are are both brilliant i was obsessed with cool runnings when i was a kid in Campbelltown to the the extent that i wore out the the vhs i vividly (laughs) remember trying to watch it and the thing just packing in at one point (laughs) i remember doing a school project off the back of it on jamaica I half remember asking my mum if I could get dreadlocks and I'm I'm really glad that she didn't take that too seriously. <laughs> Just uh, yeah. Uh that that probably shouldn't have gone any further than that two-second conversation but <laughs> so I had this I had this thing for for Jamaica on the back of that and like we we were lucky growing up but my my dad we, he, we never went on Holidays or anything, every every penny he earned, he sort of put back into our football obsession, and we had all these great experiences. And I remember he took took me and the, the middle brother Colin over to the World Cup in '98. Just to, we didn't have tickets for any of the games, but even just to experience what it was like in and around yeah. Paris and mingling with the, the Jamaican fans again just left a, an amazing impression and gave these wee kids from from Campbelltown, we, we you don't have a professional setup anywhere anywhere near Campbelltown, but it was a great insight into. The kind of calm kind of atmosphere around about football, what football can be, what it should be like. And yeah. Yeah, mingling with the Jamaicans that day left left some impression. I really liked Ricardo Gardner, who was his buccaneer and left wing back from memory. And I remember I even bought the Jamaican World Cup 98 song, which is brilliant called Kick It. Uh, I listened to that? the Jamaican World Cup squad. Oh they're
1: they actually singing. It.
2: It. Yeah, so it's worth it's worth digging out on YouTube. Uh, Jamaica World Cup squad, it's called Kick It, and I will absolutely not be singing any of it. It's beyond, beyond my capabilities, but they were a great, it's the one and only time they've been in the World Cup. It was just a great story. They played with a smile on their face, and I would like to think that Disney will one day do a film about them the way they did cool runnings, whether it's historically accurate or not, but it was just great fun. And as I said, I rarely strayed from Hibs and Scotland strips when I was a kid, but I was certainly the only kid in Campbelltown that had the Jamaican Jamaican home one in '98.
1: Yeah, was that hard to get?
2: Tough to ask my mum. She probably deserves a lot of credit for that one. Yeah. I, I've no idea if if you've ever been to to Glasgow and not everyone, not everyone will be familiar with with Greaves, the Greaves Sports Shop in, in Glasgow. But they had all these exotic football strips in, in glass cases. So the, the rare time that we would be anywhere near Glasgow, going to Greaves was a, a treat because these glass cabinets with all these strips from teams you've never heard of, and that was a real tr- treat to, to to flick through them. And yeah. I need to ask her where she actually got the the Jamaica strip, but we still, again, we've we've still got it. And, and like the Marseille one, it, it doesn't quite fit. It doesn't quite fit so well, but yeah, uh, it's another one that I really resist the temptation just to just to go and buy.
1: Yeah, yeah, it costs you a lot of money. Yeah, it's an incredible shirt. So we're, we're going to. Your final shirt is Hibernian, which sounds like it's very, very important to you. Um, it's the home shirt by Nike, uh, twenty sixteen. This is the cup final shirt, right?
2: Yeah, and I don't have that one. Which and I don't have it. Which so I probably shouldn't mention this one. I actually had this conversation with, with somebody recently. I've now taken to buying every Ibsen and Scotland strip and just sticking them in, a, in the back of a cupboard because they are they are great things to have. Um, and like I said, I would never, never really sell the the ones I've got. But yeah, I, can, I can't believe I didn't get the one that probably means the most to every every Hibs fan. Now I think everyone knows the story by now. Hibs hadn't won the Scottish Cup since nineteen o two, yeah, and it was just the fairy tale final. With the the captain scoring two minutes into, into injury time, David Gray, and it was just a it was an unreal day and an unreal week. I think the Saturday previously, family had lost our gran. She passed away, and right. it would. And I'd actually met my current girlfriend on the, the same day. Um and she passed away the Saturday previously. So it was a really, really messed up week. And it would have taken a lot to put a smile on the, the family's face that week. And and then the, the match day unfolded the, the way it did. I was I was working, so I was in the press box that day sitting on my, my hands and yeah, it was just an unforgettable day. But that strip is now synonymous with um with the best day of my life.
1: Yeah. Well, I like that one as well because it's a slightly different shade of green, isn't it? That bottle green as well, which I quite like.
2: Yeah, and I'll, I'm not a big fan of collars on strips, but I'll, I'll let them away with that. Like, like I said, that, that strip can do no wrong. But yeah, um, yeah it's, it's in the history books and how it'll forever go down as, as the Hibs strip because whatever Hibs go on to, to achieve, it'll be it'll take a lot to, to top that. And even, even the, the night of the game, and I think a lot of Hibs fans will say the next day, was almost more special than the the actual match itself. Like like I said, I was working working at the game, so you have to again retain a, a bit of composure.
1: Yeah.
2: And then I remember middle brother Colin again sending me a message after the game. Benjamin Collins going back to the stadium to enjoy the, the official party, having right been in the having been in the thick of it, doing his job in the changing room and everything. I get a text from yeah. after the game. I'm thinking, here's here comes the big invite to the big party, and uh, all it said was, "Can you?" Can you give my wife Clara a lift back through to Edinburgh so she'd come to the party? Bearing in mind I lived in Glasgow and it was a 15-minute drive home to my flat in Glasgow. But you you do these things, don't you? Because what, what are you going to do? You can't say no. So we drove we drove through to, to Edinburgh. My youngest brother, Ewan and I were just going up and down Leithwalk looking for looking for a pub to go to, and everywhere was packed out, so we didn't get in anywhere. Yeah. And then I've known left back at Hibbs Lewis Stevenson since he, was, since he was about 18 or 19. And yeah. all of a sudden his wife, who, who was enjoying herself that night, Julia, she'd phoned to, to ask where we were and had insisted that we come to this party. So Colin tells a very different version of this story. And I've heard him on podcasts saying how special it was to get his brothers into the official party that night, but it was nothing to do with him. We owe <laughs> we all we, we owe everything to, to Lewis and Julia Stevenson. And that was that was some night and some uh, some week it's been some few years since it was just a yeah you just changed. Grant Grant Stott, a prominent Hibs fan, said it was the day that everything changed, and it has totally changed everyone's experience as a Hibs fan. It's just a, a massive weight off the shoulders. You can you can almost just enjoy football now.
1: Yeah, how do you feel about Hibs in general at the moment? How how are things? The outlook
2: just come off the best finish this season in in, in a long time. I think. It'd be a really big season for them because there's five or six players that are in demand from other clubs and it's a real test of the, the new regime to see if they're able to hold on to them. Do they want to hold on to them? But yeah, I think, they're, I think they're in good nick to push on. Hearts are back in the top flight. They'll have a healthy budget. Aberdeen have hit reset a wee bit, so it'll be interested to, to see what they're like. But yeah, I think certainly on the football side of things, under a sporting director and Graham Matthew and a manager and Jack Ross who I, I would really rate the two of them I think they're, they're NCAA fans yeah
1: looking good well Kenny it's been absolutely amazing to speak to you thanks so much for making the time
2: mate ah, thanks uh, thanks for asking me. it's always always good to talk football and uh, yeah it's been a long time since I talked about that Jamaica strip out loud so no that was <laughs> that was good fun that's it uh, I'm going to have to go and dig out kick it on YouTube and uh, <laughs> me
1: too
2: sing it away to myself yeah
1: So, there you have it. Massive thanks to Kenny for sharing his football kit memories with me. You can follow me and my own collection on Instagram, or get in touch via Twitter or email. Make sure you follow Kenny on socials too, and the music you heard was produced by Eva Led, You can check out his music on his Bandcamp page. There's links to absolutely everything I mentioned in the notes section. And finally, thanks to you for listening. If you have enjoyed it, please do spread the word. Give me a follow on social and subscribe to Football Kit Memories on your podcast player of choice. And other than that, I guess that's it. Until next time, I'll see you later.